Welcome to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by Team Snap and hosted by veteran soccer broadcaster Dean Linky. Uniting coaches at every level of the game around the love of the game. We are United Soccer Coaches. Now, here's our host, Dean Linky. Am I allowed to say we got another great show? Because I think we do. Dan Lawletta will kick things off. EqualizerSoccer.com's done an amazing job since the early 2000s covering women's soccer. He'll start, talk NWSL, talk more about the open job for the U.S. Women's National Team, and so much more. Then we'll switch to D1 men's soccer. Scott Calabrese doing a great job in his third season at UCF. He's got that team in the top 15 in the country. He'll be up. And then Brooks Monaghan, 20 years at Memphis. You kidding me? 20 years, former goalkeeper at Memphis, 20 years the top man for the women's program. They're also top 15 at 13-1-1. We'll spend time with Brooks Monaghan. Then we'll switch to NAIA and talk with Matt Dunn, who is the top man at Kaiser University. He's got his team number one in the country for women's soccer. And finally, we'll end with another visit from one of our 30 under 30 members. After this visit, we're down to just seven remaining. And it's Pam Monier, the head coach for Allegheny College, D3 women. She played D3 women. And you'll like our visit with Pam. We'll kick it off. Dan Lawletta after this message from our presenting sponsor, Team Snap. Does managing your club or league feel like a second job? If so, you might need some help. With Team Snap, you can get it. Their customers save up to 15 hours each week on tasks such as communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Plus, everything you need is online, which means no more trips to the bank, no more lost checks, and no more colossal spreadsheets. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with Team Snap. Go to TeamSnap.com to find out more. Now, once again, here's your I host, Dean Lee. Lee. You just heard we got a great show today, but we're kicking off with Dan Lawletta, who is with EqualizerSoccer.com. He's been covering women's soccer folks since 2001, and Equalizer Soccer has been around since 2012. He's based in New York. If you read his stuff, folks, go to EqualizerSoccer.com. He's big time, man. He's a great writer. He's great on podcasts, and we're thrilled to start our show with Dan Lawletta. Dan, thanks for being with us. You got it. That's uh, going to be a lot to live up to, but uh, I'll do my best. <laughs> well, it's definitely the time to be thinking about women's soccer. There's some big moves that need to be made, and we've got the NWSL playoffs. So before we get to the NWSL playoffs, I do want to start with the notion that Kate Markgraf is the new general manager. Jill Ellis is finally done right, and well done, Jill. So let's do this. Let's first get your take on the job that Joe Ellis did, and then we'll follow up with deeper questions on who might be replacing her. So your thoughts on the job Joe Ellis did as our longtime coach of the U.S. women's team, Dan? Uh, I think that the Jill Ellis tenure is a very difficult tenure to analyze. At the core of it, she coached there for two World Cups in the U.S., won both World Cups, and both of those teams had an explosive impact on the uh, everyday life of Americans back here in the United States. So it's difficult to give too much criticism. I did think at times some of her personnel moves and some of her tactics were a little bit odd. I think that maybe they were not going to win gold in 2016 in Brazil, but I don't think she had a very good tournament there. I think she made some other mistakes along the way. But at the end of the day, the end of the cycle, or the most important part of the cycle is the World Cup and the U.S. won both of those World Cups, and I did think she made some very interesting moves 
that worked out very well, especially in the second cycle leading into 2019. thought that when she came into the job, which was in 2014, she basically had a quick mandate. Hey, look, we haven't won the World Cup since 1999. Win us the World Cup in 2015. She did. That gave her some leeway to tweak some things the way she wanted to do them more for 2019, and she won another World Cup. At the same time, when people were inquiring with the players about Jill Ellis's last few games, there was very little in the way of um, what you would call particularly good feelings about Jill Ellis. And if anybody uh, follows the WNBA, they recently had the end of their season. Washington Mystics won. The head coach was Mike Tebow, who had been the winningest coach ever in the league and finally won his first title. And every player I heard immediately said that we really wanted to win this for Coach Tebow. I didn't quite get that sense from the U.S. players with Jill Ellis. That said, they're, next, they're forever linked now as, um, you know, some people players were there for two times. So, you know, she was there for two World Cups and won them both. And I think ultimately that's how we'll have to remember. And I think the farther we get from her tenure, the more that will be what people do remember. Where do you think Jill Ellis goes next? Do you have any idea where she might end up? That is a great question. Uh, you know, technically for now she's still working for U.S. Soccer as an ambassador or something along those lines. You know what? It, it's difficult because where, where else do you go? Do you go to another national team? I'm not sure. Do you, you know, do you want to coach at the club level? I don't know that there's a, you know, the club level jobs in women's soccer I don't think are very highly sought after except for a handful here and there. Uh, so, I, you know, if I had to guess, I would think some sort of loose management role, and, uh, you know, maybe we don't see her on the sideline anymore going forward. But I, I would like to see it. I would like to and I think anybody in women's soccer that has a name as a head coach, I would like to see them resurface. But uh, I think at least for 2020, you'll just see her kind of floating along on the high of the 2019 World Cup win. Dan, one final question based on what you said. What were the tweaks that you felt like she made or wanted to make that uh, worked out for her in 2019? Well, you know, I think one of the most important things was if you go back to 2015, Dean, um, you know, it was a very interesting time because, you know, most people believe that there was a player revolt that kind of got Tom Sermani out of there. And I don't know if you remember, Abby Wambach was coming to the end of her career, and she was, she decided she wasn't going to play in the NWSL that season. She was just going to train herself up to the World Cup. And, you know, Jill Ellis let that go. I'm sure that she had some input from her bosses on that. And Abby Wambach, who was not a starter on that team and probably played more minutes than she would have had she not had the history with the team that she did. But she was there and a you know willing contributor off the bench. But she didn't have a club team. Fast forward to 2018, when Kristen Press got traded in the NWSL to the Houston Dash, and she said, you know, I don't want to go to the Houston Dash. So she decided to sit out. Well, they had a camp that April, and Jill Ellis called in a bunch of players. She didn't call in Kristen Press and said, you know what, if you don't have a club, you can't be called into the national team. She said, I think Kristen will have a club soon. She'll be back in with the national team. I believe that kind of kick-started the process of getting Press moved to Utah, where she went wound up back in with the team, wound up getting the start for Rapino in the semifinal, scored the first goal of that game, which was clearly the biggest goal of her career. So things, little things like that, or not a little thing, I think it's a significant thing, but you know, kind of transitioning from where the players 
were dictating terms in 2015 to where she said, no, we're going to do this my way. You're not going to just decide you're not going to have a club and keep getting called in. So little things like that. I do think she tried to expand the roster a little bit. You know, there's contractual reasons why you can only do that so much. Um, so, yeah, that, that's the big one to me that I thought, uh, you know, that Ellis really shined and, and kind of started to change the culture a little bit. Okay, two big issues again before we get to NWSL. You know what they are, equal pay and who's going to replace Joe Ellis. So let's start with the equal pay thing. Where do you think it is right now? Where do you think it lands? What's going to happen, Dan? Oh, you're opening up, putting me on the spot there, opening up the gauntlet for me. I think equal pay is a lot more complicated than most people want to believe that it is. You know, it's easy to say, you know, women play soccer, men play soccer, let's pay them the same. You know, it's not quite that simple because, first of all, the women have a lot in their collective bargaining agreement that the men don't have, that I don't think the women want to give up, which is that is essentially their full-time job for the ones that get contracted every year. The men don't have that. So right then and there, that's not exactly equal unless you want to give that up. You know, it's also a different um, – I mean, let's be honest. How many times do the men have to go to Mexico and Central America – just to qualify for the World Cup. The women qualify for the World Cup in a two-week tournament that's usually played in the United States against teams where you could probably field 20 players that are not even on the qualifying roster and they would still win the tournament. So that's not their fault necessarily, but you know, I, I just, I'm not convinced that we're caught up yet in terms of the men's and women's games actually being the same thing. Um, there are other elements where absolutely things should be equal in terms of how they travel, their per diem money, you know, how they, you know, how hotel rooms are allocated, whether there's roommates or individual rooms, or what kind of rooms they get. All those things absolutely should be 100% equal. Where it lands, to be honest, uh, your guess is as good as mine. I thought it was going to calm down after they signed the new collective bargaining agreement, but it hasn't. Uh, so, you know, I don't know. There'll be court dates coming. Most of that stuff is well over my head in terms of my level of understanding. So, uh, like I said, your guess is as good as mine as about how it ends up. Well, that's fair, but uh, let's get more concrete answer on who the next coach is going to be, Dan. If you were picking who would it be, um, or if you don't want to answer it that way, you know, who who is it going to be? Well, it looks like Vlatko Andonovsky, that's not a done deal yet. Um, according to different sources around the Woso world. I think Vlatko Andonovsky is a tremendous coach. I think tactically he's as shrewd as there is. You look at his player identification. This is a guy who went to his initial interview with FC Kansas City in late 2012. And remember, this was a league that had kind of sprouted up somewhat quickly. This is a guy nobody had ever heard of outside of the greater Kansas City area. And he showed up at his interview with a completely filled-up binder of potential college draft picks. That's how prepared he was in terms of his player identification. And you look at this season with Rain FC. He's got Bethany Balser, who didn't even play NCAA soccer. She played in the NAIA. Not only does she make the team, but she's scoring big goals for the might-be rookie of the year. I think she had six goals this season. So I think the combination of his ability to identify players and actually coach them up tactically and come up with tactical game plans to beat other teams, I think is second to none. I do believe that there is a political element to this job, and I don't know that that is where he would be best suited, 
but it certainly seems like we're heading in a direction where we're going to find out. Laura Harvey was in the mix, and I don't know if you saw, but she told the assembled media Saturday night, I guess, after the Royals' uh, final game that she is not going to be the next national team head coach, so she's obviously out of the running. So if it's not Andonofsky, then it's some other mystery finalist that uh, that whose name hasn't come my way yet. I will disagree with you on one when you say second to none, because I would say Blotko is second to Paul Riley, because you think about Paul Riley's draft class and the way he's developed him and turned him into U.S. national team players. Can you back me up on that? I mean, I know he took his name out of it, which I, I'm still puzzled by, because I think he's the best coach. And now, granted, I've got a little bit of slant, but I, I try to take that slant off even as I'm saying that, Dan. Well, don't forget, Riley, was, the, the, if you're talking about the Hinkle-Williams, newest um, Kemper draft, right? that was actually before Riley got there. I do think, you're right, I think Riley's superb. I think he's an excellent evaluator of talent. He also brings in players that you wouldn't necessarily expect. I always tell people who, when they ask me who's the best coach in the NWSL, the only two acceptable answers are Andonofsky and Riley. I would give Andonofsky a slight edge tactically, though I do think uh, they're both very good. And I thought that Riley, when when Sermani got let go in 2014, I know Riley was at least loosely in the mix then, and I think he is a little bit too outspoken for U.S. soccer, to be honest. And I think he prefers the club environment where he can dictate things and run things his own way. Uh, so t- that, that, that's my take on why Riley's not not involved in this process, at least at the deep end. And would you agree, though, that they're on par, though? I mean, Paul and, and Blatko. I mean, no, absolutely. Like I said, when people yeah. ask who's the best coach, I always say those are the only two acceptable answers. So I would okay, give a slight so edge to, to Blatko, but I can't argue with you if you think it's Paul. Okay, fair enough, Dan. I appreciate that, that intel. So here we go with Paul. I mean, the North Carolina Courage back-to-back-to-back winners of the Shield, which might be why I've given him the edge because he keeps doing it every single year, winning the Shield and getting himself in the championship game. But So here we go. They're going to play Rain FC. looks like Megan Rapino is back out there as well, which will be exciting here in North Carolina. And then, of course, on the other side, it will be Portland and Chicago. Chicago finally gets to host a game. Break down both those games for me. Well, we got that tactical matchup we were just talking about, right, in the first one, which is Riley against Andonofsky. I mean, the Courage are a superior team to the Reign at this point. You know, the Reign, I don't even know how they got into the playoffs this season with all the injuries that they've had. Rapino among them, though, as you mentioned, she is back now. I think if there's a way for the Reign to beat the Courage, it is to take advantage of Catley and Rapino teaming up on the left side and trying to expose Heather O'Reilly. And I'm sure your listeners don't want to hear that. I love Heather O'Reilly, and I think it's a fascinating story that after it looked like she was a token bench player on this team, all of a sudden Merritt Mathias gets hurt, and what do you know, Heather O'Reilly is going to ride off into the sunset as the right back on the favorite to win the NWSL championship. But I do think she is beatable if you can stack that side of the field. I think Kathleen Rapino are capable of doing it. That said... Easier said than done because if you can, if you don't win the midfield, then Catley has to spend too much time defending. And we all know that the Courage midfield is incredible. And, you know, the Rain don't have Jess Fitchlock, which they haven't had for most of the season. So, you know, I think that this is kind of a game that falls in Vlatko's wheelhouse where he's just going to sit back and say, you know what, how can I come up with one game plan to beat this team once? But that said, I think the Courage probably have too much firepower and are too uh, relentless, and I think they will 
find a way to get it done. There's too many different options for them to score. Okay, and then break down the other games, Chicago and Portland. This one's interesting, too. Um, the, you know, the Red Stars in 2013, their first ever win in NWSL was against the Thorns in June of 2013. They haven't beaten them since. They're also 0-4 in semifinals, and they've lost some of them in spectacular ways. That said, Sam Kerr is the best goal scorer, um, if not in the world, certainly playing on these shores these days. And the Thorns have scored once in five games, and they just haven't seemed to have fired since the World Cup. Uh, Lindsey Horan, who's kind of been hurt on and off throughout the season, just doesn't seem 100%. I think everything is in place here for the Red Stars to win this game. You know, they've tightened up the defense. They moved Ertz and Davidson to be the center back pairing um, after Ertz was in the midfield and Davidson and outside back for a lot of the season. And, of course, they both left for the World Cup. Uh, I think everything is in place for the Red Stars to win this game. That said, a lot of pressure on them. They're at home. Kerr may or may not be leaving the league at the end of the year. Kerr also does not have a great track record in games of this nature and magnitude. So it'll be really interesting to see. But I think if the Thorns are going to win this game and win the title, they need a better version of Lindsey Horan. I don't know if she's not 100% healthy and incapable of giving us the 2018 Lindsey Horan, but I think they need that from her if they're going to win this game and then the final. Dan, how do we make sure you, you said something interesting there with Sam Kerr? Because my fear is not just Sam Kerr leaving, but the USA Superstars leaving. And, yeah, maybe they come back, but they don't play the full season. There's a lot of money being offered overseas for our star players, big-time money, life-changing money, as if they didn't already get life-changing money coming out of the World Cup. But that's my fear. What's your take on that? It's a great question, Dean, and I don't really know the answer. I think what most people want is some sort of a designated player rule, which if you remember when them, you know, I mean, that was basically the David Beckham rule, right? When he came into Major League Soccer, they needed a way to allow the LA Galaxy to pay him enough that he would come over here. Now, I don't believe that the NWSL owners have the same kind of capital that the Galaxy did back then, and that rule has obviously expanded, but... You look at MLS and the, you know, the MLS, I think you date the before and after of MLS's growth to before the Beckham rule and Beckham's arrival and after the Beckham rule and Beckham's arrival. So at some point there needs to be something like that in this league. Now the collective bargaining agreement, which nobody really uh, is quite in the know on, does have language about when and how many U.S. players are allowed to go overseas. I don't know what those details are. You know, for Kerr, I don't know, you know, with Kerr, if you're not going to pay her, then it's really up to her to decide where she wants to play for the U.S. players. It might be time to, you know, really, you know, see, do they really, are they really committed to playing here and making a decent living and building the league here, or do they prefer to go over to Europe and make a little bit more money, but maybe sabotage a little bit of what has happened here? Now, I don't think it's a big, as big a deal as most if one or two players go, because if you want, Sam Kerr here, if you want Marta here, if you want Amandine Henri here, you're going to have to live with the fact that maybe some U.S. players are going to want to go overseas. And the other thing that might keep some players here is that the games are so competitive, and the European teams are great, but some of those leagues, you know, the bottom ends of those leagues are just not good. Those are just not competitive games when you're playing somebody outside the top three or four. So hopefully the players don't want that, but it is absolutely, you're right, an issue that needs to be 
um, addressed sooner than later. Looking at the Olympics, give me one or two players that maybe weren't on the World Cup team, and I know it's a smaller roster, so the dynamic of staying 23 to 18 and getting two new players in there, are there two new players that could get in there for the Olympic with the new coach? It's tough, right? To be the new coach, you got to come into a team that just won the World Cup, and at best, you've got to say goodbye to five of them. I think Casey Short was the best defender in the league. She's been getting call-ups with some of the injuries during the victory tour. So I think her and Andy Sullivan, who was the, who also just got a call-up, and uh, you know they were pretty much the two players that got cut. I think they are both great and both fit in. You know, with Sullivan, it'll depend on what Andonovsky or whoever the new coaches decides to do with the formation. You know, a defender is a defender, and the roles don't change too much. But I'm curious to see, does the new coach tweak the system to allow Crystal Dunn to play higher up the field. Because I think playing higher up the field, Crystal Dunn is in the conversation to be the best player in the world. She's obviously an adequate enough outside back, and you can tell me if you agree with this, from North Carolina. 100%. 100%, yeah. You know, and I, yeah. Don't think she, I don't think she should have played higher in Ellis' system because I don't think the way Ellis played um, kind of dovetailed with how Crystal Dunn likes to play attacking soccer. But I am curious, and if that happens, then that just makes it that much easier for Casey Short to get But I think Short and Sullivan, you know, maybe another keeper, you know, whether it be Aubrey Bledsoe or somebody, you know, I'm not, I'm not on the Jane Campbell bandwagon yet, though I do think she's next in line to sneak in. But, again, you've got to get one out on the keeper front, not one in, and I don't see anybody bumping Nayer off the top perch for now. But, you know, as deep as the U.S. roster is, there weren't that many players you know, off the cusp. So I think it's Short and Sullivan. I do think Jalene Hinkle is good enough, but I have a feeling that that ship has sailed both in the locker room, you know, and outside. But, uh, you know, from a pure soccer perspective, I do think she's good enough to at least get another shot, so we'll see. Well, you hit all the key points there, moving Dunn up, even uh, giving Jalen Hinkle some love. Final thing, if, uh, if you've listened to the show at all, maybe you haven't, but my listeners know that uh, my big thing is tipping points for whether it's coaches or players or whatever. Dan, what was your tipping point that said, hey, I want to cover women's soccer because you've been doing it for so long, so well. You really do a really, really nice job. Well, I appreciate that. I will tell you that I watched the 99 World Cup, just like everybody else probably. I watched it, and a couple of months later, I was in a bookstore and picked up Girls of Summer by Yuri Longman from the New York Times. Excellent book. If you haven't read it, pretty much goes into a little detail about every player on that 99 team, and it discussed the fact that they would be starting up a new league, and I've always kind of been, um, I've always been kind of interested in like picking up on a new league or a new team and following it from its inception. And a few months after that, they announced the venues, and sure enough, the New York Power were playing at Mitchell Field, which was about 15 minutes from where I lived. And at the time, I was young and not full-time employed, and I was able to go to practices and games, and I sent some emails and sent one to the right person, actually a North Carolina guy named Tim Nash, who you may know. And yep. uh, he let me write a few stories, and it turned out he had the contract to write for uh, what was then WUSA.com, and uh, the rest is history. Keep it going for sure, EqualizerSoccer.com. That's EqualizerSoccer.com. Dan Laletta does a great job. Dan, thanks for kicking off our show, my man. We'll see you on the 27th for the NWSL Championship. You got it, Dean. Thanks for having me.
Great to have Dan as we keep it going, talking women's soccer. Such an exciting time for the women's game coming off the Women's World Cup indeed and big hire coming down the road for the USA. Coming up, we'll switch gears. We'll talk D1 men's soccer. Scott Calabrese, the top man for UCF Central Florida after starting East Tennessee State. That didn't totally work out, but he's landed on his feet. He's got UCF right around the top 10. They've been in the top 10. They're 11 this week. Registration is now open for the 2020 United Soccer Coaches Convention in Baltimore. Make your plans to join us January 15th through the 19th for five days of coaching education, networking, meal and social functions, award presentations, and more. Register before December 11th to secure the best rate. Visit unitedsoccercoachesconvention.org to learn more. The United Soccer Coaches Convention, your event for all things coaching. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. I want to thank Dan Lawletta for kicking us off, talking all things women's soccer, including the new head coach possibilities for the U.S. women's national team. Now we switch to D1 men's soccer, and to do that, we're joined by Scott Calabrese. He is the top man now in his third season down at Central Florida. Tiffany Roberts-Tahedic, of course, coaching the women's team along with her husband, and they've got Scott Calabrese. This is his third season now. He is uh, in the American Athletic Conference. He's got UCF at number 11 in the country. The rankings released just a couple days ago. And, Scott, great to be with you. Dan, thanks for having me on. Yeah, before we get into the incredible job you're doing down at UCF, your team number 11 in the country, you've been in the top 10. It's an amazing story. I do want to go ahead and uh, remind everybody that Scott actually had a great start to his coaching career. He was part of the staff in North Carolina in 2001 when the Tar Heels won their first ever national championship on the men's side. And I say that because they had a big reunion. You were in town, sort of. You were down the road with UCF taking on Wake Forest. But it all kind of starts there, right? I mean, that was kind of a great way for you to sort of break into what it's like to win a lot of games, right, and win a national championship. Oh, without a doubt, my time at Chapel Hill was really important to – kind of learning what the standards are at, at that level and had a great opportunity to learn from Elmar, who is obviously a fantastic coach, was at UNC for for years and years and, and then went to Creighton. Yeah, so that was really key to me, kind of gaining a greater appreciation and understanding of, of what the top level of college soccer is like. Well, and here's the thing. i got to remind people. So here he is doing great things at the men's side, and we'll get to what he did at East Tennessee State, but – he wins the national championship on the men's side as an assistant coach and then goes to the women's side with the Carolina Courage back in the <laughs> USA and, of course, the connection with Tiffany roberts Hadig, and you win the Founders' Cup over there as well. So you must be thinking this is easy, right? Like, you know, you're, winning, you're winning titles, men and women. It was definitely a good year because that was amazing and, and another uh, incredible opportunity for me to learn uh, from Marsha McDermott and Susan Ellis, and, and then on top of it, just incredible players, uh, Carl Overbeck, Tiffany, uh, Birgit Prince, who's like three, four-time world player of the year, was, was part of that team. So it was a great turnaround, and to be a part of that, that group was, uh, it, it was really an honor. And, and again, just another opportunity for me to learn. Well, remind us what happened then. Where, where did you go after that? I think it was Clemson, right? Because you finally got your first head coaching job in 2008. So remind yeah. us after you left the Courage, was it straight to Clemson or was there something in between there? No, 
No, I, I went straight to Clemson. One of those situations where obviously the WSA at that time disbanded. I was fortunate enough, Trevor Dare gave me an opportunity to, to come to Clemson and, and to be a part of that staff. And I probably had a, a, a bigger role then. Now I had a little bit more experience and, and had a bigger role in, in, in that staff. And, you know, again, there, that, that was the ACC, a very good team under another really good coach. And, and we, again, we had actually one of the worst years in the history of Clemson. And then we followed it up. We, we, quickly realized, okay, there's some things that we need we need to change in terms of the, the, the team, and, and we were able then to follow it up the next year, where, where we had an excellent year, and ended up in the Final Four, and uh, lost to New Mexico in, in the Final Four, so yeah, and, and, and that obviously led, led to some opportunities, led to my opportunity at East, East Tennessee State University, where I, where I got to start the program from scratch. Talk about that experience. What a great experience to start a program from scratch. I mean, you got to wrap your arms all the way around it. Talk about how you grew as a coach and, and as a person doing that. Yeah, it, it was a very different experience but because I think when you are at, at a school like Clemson or at a school like UNC and, you know, recruiting at those schools was very different than East Tennessee State where – we started that program, and obviously had no history, didn't have a great reputation, but because of that, so I had to, I had to learn and develop a very different plan. I, I was very fortunate. I hired a great staff. A gentleman, Ian Louia, joined me, and, and he had kind of recruited at a different level, you know, because at East Tennessee State, we were not going to get the All-Americans straight out of high school. We weren't going to get the top kids, and so we formulated a plan, and, and that plan was very particular to that school, and uh, that was to really focus on the Tennessee kids and to, and to try to get the, the kids that would identify clearly with a Tennessee school. Maybe they were overlooked. We recruited those guys, and they, they brought some incredible qualities to the table in terms of their work rate, their their attitude, their mentality, and, and some of them were quite raw, but over time they would develop, and we built a, a nice program over over three years there where we started with three scholarships, then went to six scholarships in the second year, then went to 9.9. And, and when we were fully funded that year, uh, which was, I think, 2010, we, we were really uh, successful in that year, won the conference championship and uh, one of the automatic bids for the NCAA tournament. So uh, it, was, it, it was so much for me to learn, and, and it's amazing the difference between being assistant coach and then you move over and you become a head coach and now all of these responsibilities, all of these decisions, you're ultimately responsible for. Um, and it was it was a really good process for me to, to make mistakes, learn from those mistakes. You know, I had a great staff that, that helped me along and it was, a, it was an environment that was a little bit more forgiving. If I had maybe gotten into a big job earlier, I probably don't do nearly as well without you know, making all these mistakes and figuring these things things out at ETSU. So how hard was it to leave ETSU knowing that you, you know, essentially created that program and started from scratch? I was devastated when I left ETSU, to, to be honest. And I, I think, you know, I underestimated how connected I, I became to ETSU and, and, and to the team and to that community. It turned out I decided to make a change, I think, 
that was brought on in, in large part by a change in our administration and, and their priorities. And they had decided that they were going to take resources and they were going to move them in a different direction. And so I made that decision and, and uh, I decided and was fortunate that FIU gave me an opportunity to coach down there. But I think uh, I underestimated how, how difficult that change would be. You know, ultimately, it, it, it's all worked out. But that was a huge that was a huge learning opportunity for me, and, and uh, you know it, it, it's worked out, and I'm, I'm really happy about it. But it was a it was a hard uh, it was a hard transition. Okay, well said, Scott. I appreciate you opening up about that because obviously it's turned out great. Now you've got a team right there in the top ten, and do, things are going great. So obviously, you know it's, it's perhaps even part of God's path, right? Because you you're in the right place at the yeah. right time, getting things done. What's been so great about uh, what's going on at UCF? I was very fortunate. I came to UCF when Danny White, who's the athletic director now, I came maybe a year and a half after after he arrived and he has this ma- he has a massive vision for UCF and it's a, it's across all programs and, and people are pretty familiar with our football program and the direction of our football program and the level that it's been competing at over the last three years and that that's really no accident. And Danny White has really kind of uh, the, the the level of, of his investment, the resources he he's been able to bring to UCF uh, has given us all an opportunity, and, and he, he wants every single program to to have the opportunity to compete at a high level. That's been fantastic, and you you hear it so often that everything starts at, at the top. I'm fortunate. I, I work for a person that's got um, got a big vision for the athletic department. So, and that that's allowed us to go and and to recruit. An amazing staff. My assistants, Paul Souders and, and Jamie Davies, have done an incredible job, and, and we've been able to put together a high-level team. And um, you know, we're, we're all really committed to to the same vision for the culture of our team, and 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 for the way in which we play. And we've built this team over over three years, and we're, we've we put ourselves in a good position. Scott, why does it feel like this year more than any year a mid-major? can win a national championship. When you start looking at the top 25 or just mid-major after mid-major after mid-major, like I don't feel yeah. like you can pick a winner this year. Yeah, Virginia's having a great season. They're going to be tough. The ACC is dynamic. It's amazing. Big Ten last year sent three teams. But the mid-majors are making some major noise, Scott. you feel like you could win a national title? It's possible. But I, I also think there, there's a lot of – Teams, just like you said, there's a lot of mid-major teams that are at a very high level. You, you can just take a look historically. Akron is you you consider that a a mid-major athletic department, but because of the things that they have done historically, they they've continuously put themselves in positions to compete for a national championship. And and I think soccer is unique in, in that way, where you have this player pool that is is diverse and and so we we all especially at the mid-major level we we have to be resourceful because typically you're going to see maybe the uncs and the uclas and 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 some of those kind of larger athletic departments take some of the top or or, or the majority of the absolute top players there there's now the mls taking a lot of the young players out of the equation as well so you know, a lot of the mid-major teams are able to find high-level players because there's a there's an opportunity globally for us to go and recruit internationally. Um, and so, with with 
all athletic departments committing more resources, more and more resources to men's soccer uh, and, and coaches, many coaches doing an even better job than maybe 20, 30 years ago in, in terms of recruiting. Uh, you see lots of parity within the, that kind of top 25 group and, and even higher. Finally, turning it all back together, we mentioned that jumping from North Carolina over to the Currys and the Tiffany Roberts to Haiti, how awesome has that been for you to be connected with her as she leads UCF and they're doing great, always doing great, and now you with the men's team. Yeah, it's incredible. I love Tiff and Tim and uh, and their program. They do an amazing job. They're in the top 25. They've historically been in the top 25. They they just they do an absolutely amazing job, and I love being able to kind of pop in their office and sit down and and kind of talk about things that are going on with their team. We we bounce ideas off of each other. They're they're an incredible staff, and they're they're great human beings. So I've I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and uh, and we we continue to work together on all sorts of initiatives within both of our programs, and uh, and it's been beneficial to us both. Scott Calabrese, such a pleasure to keep it going at UCF. Thanks for being on the program, and hope to see you in the NCAA tournament, my friend. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. We switch to women's soccer. Memphis is 13-1-1. They're also top 15. Brooks Monaghan was a goalkeeper at Memphis his last three years of college soccer. He's now in his 20th season, 20 seasons as the head coach of the Memphis women's soccer team. They're 13-1-1, folks. they got some big-time players. They're youngsters. You'll like Brooks Monaghan, not Monaghan, Brooks Monaghan, coming up next. Continue to learn and build your coaching resume by attending one of United Soccer Coaches' Winter Advanced Diplomas January 6th through the 10th in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. United Soccer Coaches is conducting five advanced diplomas this January. The National, Advanced National, Premier, Advanced National Goalkeeping, and National Youth Diplomas. Go to unitedsoccercoaches.org slash education to learn more about these courses and get registered today. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. I want to thank Scott Calabrese, our last guest, getting it done at UCF. Got his team in the top 15. Now we switch to women's D1 soccer, and Memphis is in the top 15. Brooks Monaghan, now in his 20th season. He actually played at Memphis at least his sophomore through senior year. 20 years now at Memphis. They're 13-1-1. They've got a player in double-digit goals. They've got a player in double-digit assists. We'll learn about those two players. And we'll get caught up with Brooks. Brooks, thanks for being on the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. 20 seasons now, Brooks. That's a long time. That means things are good, right? Uh, things are great. Um, doesn't quite seem like 20. Seems more like five. But, uh, yeah, time, I guess time flies when you have fun. Well, clearly, uh, I know you spent one year at Evansville with uh, the legendary Freddie Smalls, but then your last three years at Memphis, and you said you're from Memphis. So, clearly, that's where you want to be, right? That's clean living in Memphis, right? Yeah, Memphis is home. I'm from here. My, you know, I'm very close. Always been close to my family. My wife's family's from Memphis, so it's been a dream to to be able to continue to coach in my hometown. I've had some wonderful opportunities over the years um, to coach at different places, but uh, Memphis is my home, and uh, you know, we've been able to build this program kind of from scratch from the early years, and um, you know, build it into what it is today. Now, if you got a dollar for every time you were introduced as Brooks Monahan instead of Monaghan, would you be loaded, Brooks, or what? I would be living on an island, sipping on <laughs> certain type of drinks, and yes, yes, watching the sunset for sure. <laughs> 
Yeah, because you kind of want to do want to just make that G silent. I'm I'm glad that uh, you pointed out it's Monaghan for sure, Brooke. So tell me a little bit about what position you played when you were at uh, Memphis those three years. Yeah, I was a crazy goalkeeper, believe it or not. So um, yeah, I grew up with. You know, playing goalkeeper, and actually one of my assistant coaches, Johnny Walker, who, um, you know, had a step with the full national team and played in MLS and down in South America. Him and I actually grew up playing together when we were kids. Um, and we were both, yeah, both both goalkeepers. Yeah, Johnny Walker, that's a name that uh, people w- will resonate for sure as well. What's yep. been the key to this year, man? 13-1-1. One one. You've had some good teams over the years, but this team looks special. you got... One player in double-digit goals, another player in double-digit assists. Tell me the names of those players and tell us why this season's going so well, Brooks. You know, Dean, it's, it's college athletics will surprise you sometimes. You know, last year, obviously, we were able to win our conference tournament. We had a pretty pretty good year. I think we finished 15th in the country. and um, um, But we lost uh, five seniors. And of those seniors, three signed professional contracts in Europe. One played in the World Cup. So on paper... You know, you always try to be realistic as a coach, and on paper, this was going to be a little bit of a rebuilding year. We thought, um, you know what, we thought we'd be able to compete. You know, we really liked our recruiting class coming in next year, and I said, you know what, we can be pretty good, I think, in 20. And um, here we are. Here we are. So surprised, and so the kids have, in my eyes, have really overachieved. We've had a lot of, uh, you know, kids that, um, you know, didn't play a lot of minutes their freshman year that really developed into special players over 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 years time and then of course we've uh, had some very good kids uh you know uh, as freshmen you know who've, who've stepped in and, and definitely given some major minutes but uh you know some of those special players as you mentioned before i mean clarissa you know she's got the double digit goals um you know it's it's you know our, our goalkeeper melissa moberg who's not given up many goals you know we've we've just been able to we've been able to stay healthy and, um, you know, we've got a, we, uh, what makes this group so special is just, um, man, this group loves each other. They do. They really, really do. They get along extremely, extremely well. And, uh, you know, we all know as coaches, when we can get a team that really, you know, gets along well off the field, that usually translates to on the field. Here with Brooks Monaghan, the top man for the Memphis women's soccer team, now 20 years, former goalkeeper for Memphis. And, Brooks, I always ask this question when I have um, new guests on, particularly you as a goalkeeper and down and dirty and making the switch to coaching women. What? Uh, how did that happen? What was the light that went on that said, "Hey, I like coaching women, and I can coach it at a D1 level"? Man, it's uh, <laughs> it's, it's an interesting story. But when I finished playing back in '95, I actually joined both men and women's staff as the goalkeeper coach, and. Um, after a year's time, I was hired full-time by a club here, a local club in town. So I didn't have the time to give both programs, so I had to pick. And, um, you know, I, I, I chose the women's side. And, you know, I was on the women's staff for a few years, and, um, you know, it, it, was, it was about a, a few weeks before preseason was starting, and the head coach at the time, you know, uh, Decided to move back home to Ohio. <laughs> they they needed to be interim in 2000. And I'll be honest, I had no idea what I was doing at that time. What I mean by that? Yes, I knew soccer, but uh, all I had ever done was coach the goalkeepers. I had done no recruiting. Um, 
I never really run a full session, so it was a lot of learning through trial and error. And, um, you know, I'll be the first to admit I've made a lot of mistakes along the way, but, um, you know, over time, you know, you know, I'll always make mistakes, but I've, I've made a lot less, I guess, over the years. But, um, yeah, like I said, very interesting story. And, and, and blessed to just kind of be at the right place at the right time and, and have this university give a young kid at the time a chance. And, you know, that first year in 2000, we just, you know, why did they keep me? <laughs> you know, we, got, we probably got a little lucky. We had the best uh, season that we had had, you know, that Memphis had ever had up to that point in time. And, so they gave me a chance, and here we are 20 years later. How about that? And you think about women's soccer today, I mean, not a better time, right? You mentioned you had one of your players play in the World Cup. I'd love to know who that was and what team she played for, so please tell us that. But, I mean, women's soccer, you look at NWSL, I mean, the attendance now is blowing up. The talent at the women's game is phenomenal, Brooks. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's been fun to watch over the years, and it just continues to grow. And, you know, you asked about that player named Chanel Hudson-Marks, who, uh, who played for Jamaica. Um, but, you know, just the early years when I first started as a coach, you know, it seems like yesterday in, in all facets of the game and just the popularity of the sport, it's, it, it's, it's grown immensely, and it's, it's really just been a fun, you know, fun to be a part of. What about the other teams down in Memphis? Because, you know, most people, when they think of Memphis, they think now of Penny Hardaway and the Memphis yeah. basketball team before him, John Calipari, right? And right. What, uh, how close are you to uh, some of the other teams, including the basketball team, Brooks? Yeah, I know. I think we've got a very close-knit group of coaches, you know. I mean, you know, when we're talking athletics, we often, you know, vouch for this, that, you know, basketball and football kind of live in their own worlds. But, uh, I, I, you know, I have a very good relationship uh, with Mike Norvell, our football coach, and, you know, they're big supporters of us. And um, and then Penny Hardaway. Penny played at Memphis when I played at Memphis. I'm not claiming to be best friends with them, but there's the connection there. And, uh, you know, both those guys, we're, we're, we're blessed to have both of those coaches that are, you know, very personal people and, you know, more than willing to get their, their their kids out to our games and just support what we're doing as well. That's pretty cool because Penny was a great NBA. Mike Miller, I used to love watching him shoot as well. I mean, you got some pretty, pretty, uh, some big time excitement too. I understand like they're going to have a good season this year too, right? Yeah, they've got the number one recruiting class. They've got the number one, you know, recruit this year. It's uh, We're getting close to that time, but uh yeah, I'd put it this way, tickets will be hard to come by. But uh, a lot of buzz around here, not only with our basketball program, but the success our football program has been having over the last few years. And that's what all of us want, you know, have, you know, being a non-revenue sports, because there is that trickle-down effect in every facet, you know. I mean, from just the uh, the hype um, to, you know, the more success those teams, you know, those big, big teams have, the, you know, the uh, more that generates income that, that that they get to share the wealth. So, um, you know, but it's, it, it, it is exciting times to be to be a Memphis Tiger. You know, I had a good opportunity, uh, I think more than once, to come down there during the Fox Soccer Game of the Week time because Richie Grant was very proactive in bringing us in there to do the Fox Soccer Games. He, of course, you know, moved on to Cal State Bakersfield. But, you know, Richie was uh, instrumental in at least exposing some people to what Memphis is all about and Memphis soccer did you have a good relationship with Richie before he left? I still have a great relationship. I mean, Richie Grant is truly um, my mentor. Um, you know, he was the one that I was in his office every day trying to figure out how to coach soccer. 
uh, at the end of the day, or college soccer. So a lot of respect for him. He's like a big brother to me, and, um, yes, we're, we're still extremely tight. I right, we're here with Brooks Montigan, the top man in Memphis. He's got his team in the top 15, 13-1-1. They reeled off 11 straight wins. Their only loss is to a really good Kansas team. They're coming off a tie to ECU. They'll play Houston tonight. What do you look for in this game against Houston tonight, Coach? Yeah, I know. Houston is, um, you know, they have a, they have a fairly new coach. And, um, you know, the way I describe it in our league, you know, we there are no easy games. It doesn't matter if you're on top or you're on bottom of the table. Every game is, is, is a grind, and, you know, you've got to be at your best if you want to get the result. So, um, you know, we're, we're, I say this with every game. We've got our hands full, uh, no matter who we're playing in this conference. So, you know, we, we just have to focus on us and be our best. How much has your team, particularly on the women's game, I feel like they're always good about uh, – hanging out with the coach's kids. And you've got two kids, Brooks and Elizabeth. How much over the years have they played a role in, uh, you know, reaching out their hand and welcoming your, your two kids into to your family there as a team? Yeah, no, they're, they're great. And it's, it's, it's fun. You know, my kids are at every game and, uh, you know, they come over, uh, you know, at halftime, they all run up to me and they give the kids five, you know, after the game, they're in the middle of the huddle. Uh, we're stretching there. You know, it, it, it's a lot of fun. And, I, you know, again, I'm blessed to, to be doing what I'm doing and obviously with my kids to, you know, to have them be a part of it. Now, if you do come out of this and you keep rolling here, 13-1-1, you talk about next year bringing in that great recruiting class. But let's say this team does continue to gel and you get in the NCAA tournament. Do you feel like uh, there's enough experience there to make a little run, Coach, based on the confidence you're building right now? I think so. I mean, we've played, you know, we've, we've, had, we've been in some very tough games, and uh, I think the kids have showed a lot of maturity. And, um, you know, I think we've shown that we can play with top-level teams. So, you know, uh, so to answer your question, I, I do believe that. I do believe that. I mean, you know, our philosophy is just here to take one game at a time. Hopefully, you know, that opens some doors for postseason. Uh, but if we're for, fortunate enough to be there, I think uh, I think we'll – be in a good place to, you know, to, to to do well. 20 years is a long time. You've had a lot of special moments. Can you name your top one or two moments uh, as the head coach of the Memphis women's soccer team coach? Yeah, I mean, you know, you always remember that first conference championship back in, in 2007, and we were blessed. We were back in Conference USA those days, and we won five straight championships. But, uh, you know, one that really stands out is 2011 because we had a regular – an undefeated regular season. We were ranked as high as third in the country that year. And, uh, you know, those are, you know, then last year winning our first American Athletic Conference Championship, that's one that stays with me. But you take a piece from every year, you know, and um, there's so many kids that have, you know, that have been a part of this program. Each, each and every one of them leaves a mark with you. Finally, Brooks Monaghan, what do you do when you're away from the soccer field just to get a break and clear your mind and that type of thing? What does Brooks Monaghan do to get away from it all? Man, I am, I'm a big outdoorsman. I, I, we're, we're blessed to have, uh, I call it the farm, but we're blessed to own some acreage, you know, about 45 minutes away from where we live. We've got a cabin. I love to hunt and fish. And uh, so that is my, when I pull through the gates at our cabin onto our property, that is just, Life just goes a little bit slower. You know, we all need our time away. We all need to find that one thing, and that would definitely be mine. So glad you do that. That's a big time. Well done. Brooks Monaghan, pleasure to 
get to know you. Sorry we didn't give you airtime earlier. You deserve it. You're doing a nice job there, Brooks. 20 years. That's awesome, man. And I'm sure you got 20 more coming. Thanks so much for being on the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. Dean, thanks for having me, my friend. All right, Brooks Monaghan. More United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by TeamSnap after this. Looking for ways to improve your training sessions? Quick Goal has supplied the highest quality soccer goals, seating, field, and training equipment for over 30 years. From backyards to the world's greatest pitches, Quick Goal has products essential for every level of the game. As an official partner to the United Soccer Coaches and technical partner to U.S. Soccer, Quick Goal knows what equipment you need to take your game to the next level. Visit quickgoal.com to satisfy all your equipment needs. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. I'm Dean Linky. As you know, we try to cover all levels of college soccer. And today we're talking NAIA women with the head coach of the number one team for NAIA women. It's Kaiser University down in West Palm Beach, Florida. Clean living for Matthew Dunn by way of England. He's the top man and he joins me now. Thanks, Coach Dunn. Pleasure to be with you. Yeah, thanks for having me on the call. Yeah, number one in the nation, that always works, right? Tell me how the team's responding to that. Uh, we've responded quite well to carrying the, you know, the big target on your back that being number one has to offer. Um, everybody wants to knock you off the top, so it adds a little bit more to every game that we play. We pretty much go out every game for us is a cup final because the opposition is playing so hard to try and beat the number one, so they give you their best every time. Um, so we don't take any days off is the way our motto's gone. So no letdowns and just keep playing finals after finals. And tell me how you found yourself to the United States. Why did you come over and what made you get into coaching? Yeah, I came over here actually in 2003 and played for Northwood University, which is what Kaiser used to be until four years ago when we switched names. Uh played four years on the men's team here. After graduating, my current coach at the time was the head coach of men and women, and he hired me to be the assistant for the women. And from there, we just carried on moving up to associate head coach to then becoming the head coach about seven years ago. And what do you enjoy, Matt, most about coaching women? Um, it's a bit of a different beast um, in terms of when you're coaching guys, they can be very, there could be a lot of egos and a lot of, I know how to do it and you don't know what you're doing. As where the women are more open to taking things on board and listening to the why I want them to do something rather than the how or things like that. So it becomes a lot easier to get game plans across. Um, you're not always battling the, the ego that comes with it. Um, I do enjoy being a lot more detailed orientated with the girls and they take on board and ask a lot of questions. So it's, a, it's definitely a totally different game to coaching men. And Matt, what made you want to get into coaching? Uh, as I was coming towards the end of my time as a player, when I got to my senior year, uh, I'd taken on a leadership role as a captain um, and I could see that people were gravitating towards me to ask questions and you know, I was the go-between between the head coach and the team, and I really liked the X's and O's part of it as well. So I just started to work more with him that final year and found that I was actually enjoying it quite a lot. Up until that point, I'd not really given much thought about what career path as any college kid did, and then it just seemed to fall into place that the timing was right and I enjoyed doing it. And since then, I've not really looked back or thought about anything else. 
thought from coaching. Give us an idea of the level at NAIA Women's College Soccer. Break it down for us, Coach. Yeah, a lot of people overlook the NAIA in terms of, you know, Division One. I've got to go Division One, and if I don't make that bar, I've got to go Division Two. But really, the levels are all pretty much evenly split. If you take the top ten best teams from Division One, Division Two, Division Three, and NAIA, you've probably got. 40 good teams right there that, that can play. Uh, what's good about the NAIA is we have a lot larger pool of international players um, that through reasons of where they've played before or their age um, actually can come and play. So where your top American players at that level are all going Division One, the door is probably not open to this foreign player who's just as good but the doors closed in terms of the NCA rules, so they're coming into the NEIA. Um, you know, my team, for instance, we have 16 Swedish players, two German players, one Japanese, three from Norway, three from Denmark, one from Spain, and then probably about five to eight Americans and one Canadian. So we're made up of a lot of international players, um, and that's just because... I can't attract maybe the best American player because of the Division One dream, as where for the international, they're probably the same type of player, but they don't have the same dream in terms of Division One. They just want to go and play on a good team that's competing for national championships. Yeah, that's well said. And you've got one Swede that's got 13 goals. Tell us her name and what makes her so great. Yeah, uh, her name's Matilda Ovenberger. Uh, we actually nicknamed her Cheeseburger. She, she laughs about it, but I give out nicknames sometimes because I can't pronounce everybody's name from the sideline. So she actually goes, she's known through the NAI now as Cheese, Cheeseburger. Uh, she was a breakout <laughs> freshman last year. Um, she was selected as the all attacking player of the tournament, at the national tournament. She was a first-team All-American, um, and she's come back in this year and, again, already started to score goals and has won player of the week and has really started to hit a stride just at the right time. So we're happy that she's here. Um, statistically, she's just scoring goals for fun. I think she's already got 52 goals in her career, and she's only been here for a season and a half. So um, she's definitely one to watch. Um, and without her, you know, we wouldn't be where we are because at the end of the day, you need to put the ball in the back of the net, and she's good at that. Yeah, and who doesn't love a cheeseburger, right? That's awesome. I love that exactly. nickname. Yeah. Uh, well, you told us where you played. What was your best memory as a player, Coach Don? And then what's been your best memory as a coach so far? Um, as a player, uh, probably back in '06, uh, we made the national tournament for the first time and um, we won the opening round game and then we got picked to play Albert Montgomery who at that time was number one in the nation had not lost a game had not given up a goal tipped heavily favorites to win the whole thing and we were the 17 seed basically we were there to make up the numbers and in the end we caused a massive upset and beat them 3-2 um, so take us on to the Elite Eight. So as a player, that was probably my best memory. Um, as a coach, I would say last year, we obviously broke a lot of records throughout the season, but um, winning our semifinal game, knocking out the number one seed who had been 
national championship two out of four years, been to the final three out of four years, had one of the best all-time NEI players who's now playing in the Women's Premier League. To beat them was great, 3-1, and it got us to our first ever final, so that would be the best memory of the coach. Yeah, those are two great memories. What's your dream job in coaching, Coach Dunn? Um, I'm not too sure if I've really given much thought to the dream job. Obviously, I could say go back to England and coach in the Premier League, but that would be silly. Um, I think for right now, where we are, as you said at the beginning, living in West Palm Beach, just doing what we're doing every day here, it's a great job already. So um, I could probably see myself staying here forever with this climate and winning every week, but maybe climbing up the ladder to Division One at some point. But for right now, I live my dream every day, so I'm happy where I am. That's a great answer. Who's your Premier League team? Oh, my team is not actually in the Premier League. We got relegated to, in 2000. It's been a long time since my team, Sheffield Wednesday, has even been near the Premier League. Wow. I remember when John Harks played for Sheffield Wednesday. Do you remember that? Yeah, that's right. That's right. John Harks, we had that way, way, way back when the Premier League started. So, uh, long ago, the glory days. Yeah, indeed. And uh, last thing, just for people that don't know, what's the best way to describe Kaiser University and what makes it so special, Coach? Uh, we're a small, obviously, small campus, but Kaiser actually has 19 campuses across Florida. We're the only campus that is a traditional campus with athletics and dorms so we're kind of what we're called the flagship campus of the whole Kaiser umbrellas um, what makes us a little bit different is obviously having so many different countries and diversity all across the campus through all of our sports um, and being small 2,000 students everybody is a family kind of orientated campus so everybody gets behind each other's sports we work together in terms of promoting each other's sports. So we've got a really good foundation in terms of the athletic program and the community. So that really helps, especially the foreign players that are coming from overseas. They feel like they're welcomed right into a small kind of, I guess you could call it town. It's like a mini little village ourselves right here. Congratulations on your great start to the season as you head down the stretch run, number one in the country. I hope you win an NAIA women's title at Kaiser, and good luck to you, Coach. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. All right, we'll be back with more United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. Team Snap's awesome. I have five teams on Team Snap. There are no questions asked by the players, the parents. Very easy to use. Very, very, very easy. Simple to use. Everyone, you know, everything's right there. Messages, availability, boom, boom, boom. I've looked at other at other things, and I think Team Snap sets the bar for this type of team management software. It's the best that i found. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. If you've been listening to the show, you know my favorite part is getting to know members of our talented United Soccer Coaches 30 Under 30 class. Ironically, this week, United Soccer Coaches announced the class for next year that will meet at the United Soccer Coaches Convention in Baltimore. We still have eight more to meet from this existing class, and we start with Pam Monier. She is the head coach at Allegheny College in Pennsylvania. That's D3 women. She played D3 women's soccer for SUNY Cortland, and Pam joins me now. Pam, thanks for being with us. Hi, Dean. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, delighted to have you on, and let's get to know you a little bit. Tell us 
where you grew up and how you found your way to SUNY Cortland. Sure. Yeah, I, I grew up on Long Island in Northport, New York, which is in Suffolk County. Um, same house that I, you know, that I grew up in. Uh, my parents still live there. Um, uh, went to high school there. Uh, Cortland is is a, a bit of a uh, of a feed from Long Island, so I think it, you know, it fits the bill for me. I was really interested in physical education initially instead of coaching, so that was kind of my path. So I narrowed my search for college based on that major, um, and came down to two schools. And, and when it came down to the decision, Cortland was the one that that kind of fit me best, and um, best decision that I ever made for sure. What's the best way to describe SUNY Cortland? And then from there, tell us what position you played on their team. Sure. Um, yeah, SUNY Cortland, I think the best way to describe it is an athletics powerhouse. Um, uh, you know, obviously phenomenal academics as well. Um, a beautiful campus, beautiful facilities, both for athletics and academics. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's just a phenomenal place to be. And, um, you know, that, that it just, it, it was a, the right decision for me at the time to make the decision to go there and, uh, you know, uh, I think, you know, for our ability and, and making it into the NCAA tournament, you know, it was a great experience for me. And uh, I was a goalkeeper for that team from uh, 2007 to 2012. I had a redshirt year mixed in there, so I played as a grad student and, uh, after my, my senior year was completed. So um, that was my experience there. It was great. What's your best memory before we talk coaching as a player, either during your high school or academy time or as a player at SUNY Cortland? Sure. That's, it's easy for me, Dean. Honestly, um, in the, uh, the first round of the NCAA tournament, um, we were at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, and, um, you know, we had gotten in uh, on an at-large bid, uh, which we were uh, really, really honored to receive, and, you know, it was kind of everything was handed to us at the end of it after a lot of hard work and, and, and a lot of disappointment with not winning the conference, and we make it to the NCAA tournament for the first time in my career as a, as a grad student, and um, we ended up going into double overtime and then penalty kicks. Um, penalty kicks went to eight rounds of penalty kicks, um, it was back and forth between myself and the uh, opponent, uh, the opponent goalkeeper. Um, she saved four penalty kicks in a row, and I saved five in a row to seal the win, which was just the most ridiculous kind of flow moment that I've ever had as a player. And you know, never ever replicated anything like that before. But it was just one of those moments where I could not miss, and I was in the zone, and it was by far the best experience that I've had as a player for sure. That's what I was going to say, Pam, in the zone, indeed. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I've seen a lot of, yeah. a lot of college soccer. I don't think I've ever seen anyone say five penalty kicks. Well done. You. Honestly, I, awesome. yeah, I, I don't know if anybody saves four, to be honest. It was, it was, I honestly, if, if you were to look back at it, I wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised that there was some records on that game between the amount of penalty kicks that were saved. <laughs> Gotta be. Absolutely. Oh, I love, I, I love, Asking that question and hearing the unique answers, and you were right on yeah. point with that. Okay, so so you said you went to uh, SUNY Cortland originally for phys ed. So talk about what you did when you got out of SUNY Cortland before you ended up at uh, Allegheny, where I understand you were an assistant coach for one year and then named Correct. a head coach at just 26 years young, which is awesome, Pam. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely a trip, that's for sure. Um, so like I said, I, I redshirted my freshman year. Um, so I stuck around and I, I continued in my physical education degree and, and made the plan to, to stay and get my master's degree in health education and go teach K through 12 PE. Um, but in that year that I was um, a graduate a graduate player, um, I joined the staff right after the season and became a GA for the program um, from November until the end of my my master's degree. And, 
And in that time frame, I just kind of realized that this was what I was looking for. You know, physical education was always a passion of mine, always something that I really enjoyed. But what I came to realize is that, um, you know, PE is, is for a lot of students, for a lot of kids, it's not something that they enjoy. And it's something that they look to as a burden. And, and for me, I, I didn't want to be a burden. I didn't want to be that teacher that people didn't want to, you know, be be around or say hi to. And I felt I found that coaching at, at the college level, you know, between the recruiting process, especially at Division Three, you know, they're choosing the school first, and they're, then they're choosing a lot of a lot of cases based on the soccer program and based on the coaching staff. Because when it comes down to it, you know, it, it gets to it gets to be pretty convoluted when you get to those final decisions. And I think for me being able to create my own team and, and, and kind of build a program from the ground up has been um, an absolute joy. And, and I think it, it's something that I would have never been able to do if I had continued on with physical education and, and became the K-12 through teacher. So, um, you know, I think for me it was that grad year and, and that Achilles injury that I had my freshman year that really kind of helped set me on the right path to becoming a coach for sure. Um, you know, and after my time at Cortland and as a GA, I, I went to Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York, and had a phenomenal experience there for two years. Um, I worked for two coaches, had a little bit of an interim period when one of the, when the, my, my first uh, boss, Laura Williamson, um, left for another job. Um, and then Corey Holton came in, um, very well involved in the United Soccer Coaches, Corey Holton, and, and she came in and, and taught me a lot, and I learned a lot from her during that experience. And uh, my time at Vassar was, was really, really important to me in my growth as a, as a, as a coach and, and led me to, to gain the opportunity to become the head coach of the program here at Allegheny. So um, quite the path, but a path that I'm, I'm really grateful for. Yeah, paint the picture. You did such a great job painting the picture of SUNY Cortland. Paint the picture of Allegheny College. It sounds, I mean, I, I got to believe that's also a beautiful location. It is, yeah, especially right now. Right now, Dean, with the fall, it's, it's beautiful. All the leaves are turning. The weather's in the 50s and 60s. It's, it's perfect soccer weather up here right now. I couldn't ask for a better place to be coaching. Um, but Allegheny College is a Division three liberal arts school. Um, phenomenal uh, science programs. We have the second-best environmental science program in the country right now. Um, so very well known for our sciences and also for our, our, uh, our languages and, and for our, our more liberal arts-oriented majors. Um, but it is, uh, again, located in a beautiful place. Um, we play in the North Coast Athletic Conference, so we play mostly schools that go west of us into Ohio, and then we play one school in Indiana as well. Um, but the school itself, I mean, I drove onto campus, and it was, you know, the picturesque, classic, you know, red brick, white pillar buildings. Um, the school started in 1815, so it's one of the oldest schools in the whole country. And, um, you know, the campus and the history of the campus is absolutely an ode to that as with its beauty and, and with the architecture that's around campus. And it's uh, 22,000 students total, but the campus sprawls quite largely, and it makes it feel like it's, it's a much bigger place than it actually is, which is um, great for us. So it, it's a great place to work. It's a great place to go to school. And um, I've had a really, really good, good time here um, through, through this opportunity to be here in coaching. Speaking of history and even odes, you've got this brilliant French name, Pam Monet. <laughs> Talk about uh, your family's background. Is there an interesting story there? Yeah, you know, honestly, not not some, not too much of my knowledge, uh, to be quite frank. I, I I don't know much about my French heritage. I really should. I've, I've been really uh, going back and forth on diving in and, and getting one of those, um, you know, DNA tests that I can kind of figure out all the history of my family. But I just learned that one of my great-grandparents was born in Switzerland, and I didn't even know that I had Swiss heritage. So I am not not really a great person to ask about that kind of stuff, but uh, uh, definitely something that I've been uh, thinking about looking into. And uh, all, all I, what I do know is that when I was in seventh grade, 
um, when it came to choosing a language to take, I chose French simply because of my last name, and, and my parents thought I was a little bit crazy because everybody, because my whole family took Spanish. So um, I, I definitely had a little bit in me of wanting to learn at that point, but uh, French only lasted a couple of years for me. So <laughs> yeah, it's hard. I took French too. It's hard to retain that for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, you've heard me ask this question before to the other members, and obviously you're rolling along. I think you said you've been there five years now, but. Do you have any idea what uh, your grand plan is? Where do you think your final stop's going to be? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I try, I try to stay in the moment. I try to live in the moment and, and be here and be present. You know, I think when we're in the recruiting process, you know, we get that question a lot. Well, you know, are you going to be here? And I think, you know, the the answer for me is, you know, I want to be here. I'm happy here, but I can't predict the future necessarily, and I don't know if things could come up or things in my life could change. Um, you know, I think my parents still live on Long Island and. Um, you know, they'll be there for, for probably the rest of their lives. And I think, you know, for me, that's, that's an important part of, of, of my life is my family and, and having the opportunity to spend time with my parents. So I think, you know, long term, um, and again, I have no idea if this is, you know, within 10 years or 20 years, whatever the case may be, um, I think I'd like to be ultimately closer to them um, and have, have an opportunity to be able to spend more time with them regularly. Um, but they, they're great. They're phenomenal, phenomenal parents. They, they actually were just here this past weekend to come up and watch me play and, um, my dad just retired, and, and he's taken the time to, um, you know, they flew into Buffalo to drive to Meadville. He's flying into Cleveland tonight to watch us play tonight, and then he's sticking around to watch us play on Saturday in Ohio as well. So I have a great family support system, and I think ultimately, you know, long term, the goal would be to continue to work in, in soccer, work in coaching, work in athletics, um, but potentially somewhere that's just a little bit closer to them where I can um, just have that have that connection a little bit more in person with them because they're really, really important to me and, and uh, you know, my development and, and who I am as a person. So Great answer, and I'm really enjoying your energy as well, Pam. With that, <laughs> what, is, uh, what is it about United Soccer Coaches that you like so much to even want you to be a part of this 30 Under 30 program? Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the opportunity that it provides is, is just simply, you know, one of the best. I, you know, we, I work with a lot of other coaches of a lot of different sports and I think the United Soccer Coaches Association is second to none. You know, the, the incorporation of not only just college athletics, but incorporating everything from professional all the way down to, to recreational and, you know, under three, um, all included in the same kind of association really allows for a lot of expansion and a lot of, um, you know, connection with different people who come from different walks of life and different kinds of coaching. And I think that's been really important to me throughout the process. Um, you know, and I think also just the opportunities to always have the, have the chance to meet new people and, and expand you know, my network of, of just coaches to rely on and coaches to, you know, know that I can have on speed dial, that I can call if there's anything that I need or, you know, just to talk shop or things like that. So I think, you know, simply just the, the welcome, the, the, the amount of welcoming that the association provides in addition to the opportunities that it provides not only with 30 under 30 um, and, and having the opportunity and the honor to be a part of this past year's class, but, um, you know, the ability to go to coaching courses and to truly feel like we have opportunities every single day to develop ourselves as coaches where I know there are a lot of other coaching um, associations that don't have those opportunities. I mean, if I'm, if I'm struggling for a drill, I pull up United Soccer Coaches and I can just pull up the library and it's right there and I can look up anything. And I think having that database and having that those resources is huge. Um, and, I, again, like I said before, I just think it's second to none when it comes to coaching associations in the, in the country and in the world. Finally, we can't let you go without dropping some names. Who's your mentor, <laughs> whether it's just United Soccer Coaches or other mentors? 
Sure. Um, you know, I think for me, uh, Heidi Axtell, um, the, the head women's coach at City Cortland, is a huge rock for me in regards to, um, you know, my development and, and who I know I can call if, if there's anything that I need. Um, just like that, Steve Axtell, her uh, her husband, who's the men's soccer coach there, um, he's also one of somebody that I absolutely have in my back pocket. And then, you know, everybody that I've had the opportunity to work under has, has been phenomenal for me. Laura Williamson, who um, was at Vassar College when I was working there, Corey Holton, um, who's still at Vassar College as the head coach there. Mike Weber, who was at Allegheny College, who's now at Regis College in Massachusetts. And, you know, I think for me, just the opportunities to, um, to, to grow and, and work for those, those people has been a really, really big, big opportunity to, to help push me to get to this place at this point in my life. And, you know, I think going back into, into high school, um, you know, different sports, but my two basketball coaches that I had in high school really, really pushed me and, and showed me what good coaching is. And, uh, and that's Barbara DeGear and, and Rich Castellano. And, and they really, really, um, you know, pushed me to not only be a better athlete, but to see what it means to be a good coach and to be a good person and to be supportive for, for young people and, and to push them to be better, um, you know, long, long term. So I think those are definitely, um, you know, the people to shout out. And then again, I already did this, but I can't, I can't thank my parents enough for their support and, and what they've done and provided for me throughout the course of, you know, the stipends and the GA process and not having any money. And, and of course, beyond that, just their emotional support and, um, you know, and, and the, their willingness to come out to our, to, to our games and support the team and, and, and make themselves a part of it, even from seven hours away. So um, I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky with the coaching tree that I have. I'm very lucky with the people that I have around me supporting me. Yeah, and we're lucky to be able to hear your story. I, I like you a lot, Pam. Pam Mongay. Oh, thanks, Dean. I appreciate name, that. Great person. Yeah, <laughs> Coach Pam Mongay. I like saying it. It's like a, it's like, it sounds like a great little pastry, you know? It, it flows. Mongay. Yeah, it flows. I love yep. <laughs> yeah, yep. It flows pretty well. Yep, definitely. <laughs> All right. Pam, great to get to know you. Thanks for being on the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, and congrats on being a member of the 30 Under 30 class. Thank you so much, Dean. I really appreciate the time. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Pam. We thank all of our great guests, as well as Sean Chevro, Michael Knipper, and all the great people at United Soccer Coaches. I'm Dean Linke. See you same time, same channel next week for another edition of United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by Team Snap.